Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Carissa Mom Podcast with the HR Twins. We're so glad that you could join us today and so excited for this episode. So stay tuned. Everyone, uh, we're getting started with our HR Roundtable Live, The Real Talk. We're so excited for everyone to join us in this discussion. We want to encourage you to put your questions or scenarios in the chat box so we can answer them live. Um, we have a great group of panelists here with us today, but I guess I want to start with um the purpose of this roundtable, um, and we talked pre in our pre-show uh, behind the scenes about why uh, the career salon was started. So it was started to provide information to employees as well as our fellow HR professionals on the real deal that you know what goes on in HR and recruiting, and we wanted to make sure that we empower employees to interact um, in you know, with HR and to be able to pull themselves up and push themselves forward in their careers, as well as challenge our fellow, our colleagues in HR recruiting to do better, to be better. We all can do that. And just because we have started the career salon, that doesn't mean that we can't be better as well. Um, a lot of these things that we put on, a lot of content that we put out, um, it helps us to be better HR practitioners. So we want to welcome you to the HR roundtable called The Real Talk. We're going to have a mix of topics to discuss in HR recruiting on the employee side, as well as to challenge our peers and colleagues on. So I want our group, our panelists to introduce themselves. Um, we'll start with Enrica McDaniel, and then we'll go around. <laughs> yes, I am Enrica McDaniel. Um, I'm an HR director in the DFW area. Um, I've been in HR for, um, it'll be 13 years this October. Um, so I've had a lot of experience working with a lot of different people a lot of, and supporting a lot of different groups. Thank you. And we'll go to John. John Wheeler, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm John Wheeler. I'm a HR professional specializing in industrial labor relations. I've been in the business uh, doing HR support for a little over 10 years, primarily in the utility industry. So very excited to get to join you guys today and continue these conversations. Thank you. And Allie? Hi, I'm Allie Barton. I've spent the last couple years in the hiring space, so I do a lot of recruiting. And recently, in the last year and a half, I started at Allie Hires, which is a platform, educational platform for really helping recruiters in HR transform their hiring strategies. Amazing. We're so excited and happy that you all are joining us for this discussion. <laughs> yes. So we'll start it off with our first question, which is, why are employees scared or apprehensive to come to HR with their issues or complaints or just anything for support? Why do you think people are apprehensive? I think HR has typically been seen as one of two things. It's either the police, 
you know, they're asking me questions because they think I did something wrong or it's, you know, those very personal issues that they're having to come forward with and say, I was harassed in my job. And that's what their interactions with HR have been outside of, you know, either the recruiter who bought them in or the person in competent benefits who filled out their benefits information for them. That's a lot of people first time interacting with us is mm-hmm. seeing it as that police office position. I'll never forget. There's a great episode of the big bang theory where they all get called into HR and they look at each other and say, I can't believe you got us to go to the principal's office. <laughs> and we've got, we've got to change the idea that we're not the principal's office. Mm-hmm. We're here because. Yeah, exactly. Ali, what were you going to say? You know, I think I think there's that apprehensiveness as well that people feel that sometimes HR has a habit of down downplaying things, you know, and they feel like, is this worth even going to HR over? Is it worth raising this question up? Or am I overreacting? And I know this because in recruiting, it's kind of like I'm HR light. So because a lot of times I'm the one interviewing these people, bringing them on, and as John mentioned, their first interaction with the company, there's a bit of a trust developed there. So I do find people will come to me before HR saying, well, Allie, is this worth bringing up to them? You know, because they just, there's that fear if I bring up something that's not worthy, then is it going to raise alarms? Is my job going to be jeopardized? Is my boss going to be upset? Yeah. Yes. And I was going to say, I think that HR um, historically just has a, uh, a reputation that supersedes anybody that's in that role at that time. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of times employees will um, start positions and, you know, experience, you know, not getting something that they should have gotten as part of their onboarding and never bring that up because it's like, well, I didn't know if I should go to HR, what will happen? And so it's like, you, you like, you never met me, met me to know if I'm going to react in a negative way. And I think it's just one of those professions that similar to like lawyers where people just have this negative connotation with it. Um, and it's, then up to the HR person in that role to challenge that because I think HR is one of the only fields probably that you come into it negative and then you have to work towards the positive. Positive. Yeah. I think I think another I think another reason why employees are apprehensive to go to HR is because I feel like HR is seen as management's union that we only represent the uh, what management management represents and we do what they tell us to do. And if we all had the responsibility to uh, build trust across the organizations with all employee levels and we've established that, I think employees would be more apt to come to HR, trusting them that they will support them and that they will you know, help to do conflict resolution and things like that for them. Um, I always tell employers wherever I work, I'm not on management side. I'm on the side of right. So wherever that falls, whether it's on management side or the employee side, you will know where I stand. If it's if it's the side of right, that's the side I'm on. And I think uh, HR organizations have to be more intentional on building trust with the employees that make the money. Yeah. And we have um, a. Oh, go ahead, Carla. <laughs> that we have a uh, from the audience. People sometimes are not sure of the various concerns that could be handled by HR. Yeah, mm, that is that is true. I think you know, that I think that to turn the corner on the reputation of HR, HR needs to be 
more informative about you know the roles and responsibilities of each person in the department i mean now if your apartment is like an amazon it's like thousands of people in hr of course you can still provide hey these are the buckets of hr and if you have an issue or concern you go to this group or you go to that group if it's a smaller organization like i know in my organization we've sent out emails company-wide saying this part here's this person's headshot this person's picture this is what they're responsible for here's camille's picture she heads up talent acquisition if you need something in this area these are the things that she covers and so that people are familiar with you know the hr org and know who to go to and you know when and that's why it's important for hr to get up from your desk right <laughs> get up from your desk and not if you're working remotely and things like that you know of course but get up from your desk check in with your employees um I, one thing my boss said about me is she said she appreciates that you know i get up i walk around i talk to people in the hallway because that's how you get to know your employees then when they have mm -hmm. a concern or an issue they feel like they can come to you even if it's not your wheelhouse right there's mm -hmm. still that connection there and they'll be able or feel more comfortable to come to you with something and have that trust and that confidence as carla mentioned i think um the next question is do we have any advice for employees and how to navigate or approach their hr departments um, I think one advice I would give um, is, you know, just to go with any question, but sometimes I, I do find um, that I will have employees who will come to me um, and, you know, I understand that I'm an employee too. So you think about yourself yeah. uh, and not think about holistically, like, does this, what I'm asking, does it make sense as, as a business to do? Mm -hmm. um, so like, why can't I work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, one to four? It's like, you know, like we hired you for this. Like, think about some of the questions that you're asking. Um, not to say that, th that there's any wrong question to ask, but sometimes I do have employees that come and, and I want to help them. But I also want to say, like, <laughs> like, I can go to your manager, at, you know, and for like business things, we can't change metric sometimes and all that and they're like well i can't make 15 whatchamacallits a day i can only do three it's like but we're paying you sixty-five thousand dollars, and you're telling me you can only do three um so you know just think about it and you know if it's something that aligns to you feeling unsafe no questions asked um come to me that's what i'm there for Similar to Carla, I'm on the side of right. And so I don't, I draw a line there. But, um, you know, and some of the other things that employees like to ask HR for, just sit down and think, you know, if everyone on my team made the same request, would this be feasible? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also for people that are looking, or thinking about even contemplating going to HR because there's something they think is an issue or a question. I think go to the person you do feel comfortable with, even if you're mm -hmm. not sure if they're the right person to go to, whether that's the HR admin who did your onboarding paperwork or the right. Or let's say some places have field trainers. Um, I briefly did training for a year, it was not for me, in part because I don't do employee relations, I'm a crier. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
<laughs> whatever's going on. So that's why I'm like, I am better on the hiring side. <laughs> said, like I, when people did come to me, like, you know, I'd be able to navigate them to the right place, right? Yeah. Whether it's going to the benefits mm-hmm. team or going to whomever they need to bring that up to. So I would say for people who are, who think they have a question, you know, go to the person you feel comfortable with. Yeah. HR, at the end of the day, they're there to help you. And even if they're not the exact right person, they're going to, they're going to send you the right person. Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. And, um, Kim from our audience says, yes, it's not always well communicated to employees who and when HR should be engaged. Our HR team were always hiding behind closed doors. Yes. <laughs> That's terrible. So understand. And even, even from an HR perspective, I used to be in some offices and it's like the office space with the HR team. And it would be like the manager in a, with in closed door meetings literally all day. Mm-hmm. Like do you have that much business to discuss? I'm really confused. Because it's like human resources. I feel like, you know, they should at least put that, you know, that clock that's on businesses to be back at. <laughs> Let us know, like, when are you going to open your door? <laughs> so, see, I mean, even that would help because you're always in your office and closed doors. And I do understand that, you know, HR handles sensitive information. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be confidential on a myriad of things. And so I do understand that sometimes doors need to be closed. But again, going back to that intentionality, we need to be intentional and intentional and in getting to know our workforce, getting to understand their issues and how we can make the work culture and environment better. Um, and also I would say for employees, I agree with Allie in connecting with the person you connected with first. If you develop a, develop a rapport during orientation with that person, um, you know, stay in contact with them. I would say too that, you know, HR needs some effort on their part to do relationships, um, to maintain relationships, but also relationships are a two-way street. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure you're making that effort to get to know the people that your company so you can know who to talk to and know who to go to when you need them. Um, it's we're all working as a team. And so you have to be do your part to be on that team. Right. Right. Absolutely. I was just uh, thinking, you know, it's like at most HR groups, if you if let's say you have field operations or you have field locations and an HR professional or HR department or representative comes to the it's always like. Why is HR here? When I first started my job that I have now, I used to want to go and work out at some, you know, at some of our job sites, like work with them for the day, buy the group lunch. And when I first started, they would be like, why are you here? Are you here to fire somebody? Are you here to do this with their reaction? I'm like, no, I just want to work with you guys. I just want to sit and chat with you, buy you guys lunch. And they were like, that's weird. It shouldn't be weird. (laughs) It shouldn't be weird. <laughs> Definitely. So, as we know, some larger and global companies have HR centers where you put in a ticket to get a response from a representative in HR. What are some pros and cons of having that model? I know Enrico worked in that model before, so yeah. I know she has some so, comments. I mean, some pros to it is that you know it's easily accessible to employees, so there's usually always someone available to get your questions answered. Um, Some other pros to it, I think it creates a pipeline for a lot of HR professionals who want to get into the profession. Um, If you have a bigger center, um, people are able to get that experience. 
um, some of the cons, I think um, you do lose that human element to it. Um, you do become a ticket. And then I think from a business standpoint, they, you know, hired for productivity and not for if you can do HR, if that made sense. Um, now, you know, this person's great because they close 20 tickets in a day. And it's like, well, yeah, but I, you know, I'm a traditional HR person. So I only, I'm only closing five because I'm calling people and saying like, did your manager say that? And then what was your response? How about you go and say this? And that person's just, you know, sending templates in replies to people and closing tickets. So you lose that human aspect when you have a, a large call center. And, you know, I actually hear a lot of disgruntled HR people who work in that model, um, especially those who got into it because they wanted to be HR people and they get into this weird like call center um, environment and they just feel like it's not the same. It's not what they signed up for. Mm -hmm. They're a call center employee and that's not anything against a call center employee, but with those same metrics in regards to people really being upset about their livelihood. Mm -hmm. oh. Wow, that's interesting. Anybody else? All her faces are just like, uh. <laughs> like, because if that was my first exposure to HR, I mean, in recruiting, I think I would have, yeah, I wouldn't have enjoyed it either because it's it, it's feeling transactional mm -hmm. rather than personal. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's it's numbers over people, you know. I do think I think one of the saving graces is I do think when you have that. When it comes to the benefits side, let's say, and you have those commonly asked questions, mm -hmm. yeah. that's where I think it comes in handy. I don't think it's the best resource for employee relations. You mm -hmm. know, there's always going to be an emergency hotline, of course, but I think on the benefits side, when it's like, hey, I'm trying to switch my 401k, like, yeah. then that is something that can be a template answer because it's not, I mean, it's still dealing with somebody's livelihood, but it's not quite those personal interactions. Yeah, that way I think it works really well. Like places that have HR support centers, mm -hmm. you know, you get those commonly asked questions. Um, it's it's great because employees are like, I really don't have to wait until 345 when Carla's out of a meeting to ask her, can I have a direct deposit form or something like that? <laughs> right. um, so that stuff, it works great, but not for the ER stuff, I don't think. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that goes to, employees being apprehensive to approach HR too, because eventually I've not worked in a call center, but I do know by observation and people that have worked in call centers that call center, the model is call center burnout is a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, the, the constant drive, like you said, Enrica for productivity and numbers and quotas and, and all of that people get burnt out. And when you get burnt out, you're, customer service skills decrease. You don't, they're not in the reach <laughs> as much as they were when you first started. And so I think that's a very real thing. And it starts to affect how these HR practitioners respond to employees. Mm -hmm. And it may not be, and you know, an employee may think, oh, what did I, did I say something wrong? Am I annoying? What, what did I do? It's not you, they're burned out. Mm -hmm. And so I think that goes to that as well. I agree. You start to hear the same story over and over and it you don't want to become like deaf to it where you're like someone's calling and saying, 
you know, my manager does this and you're like, oh yeah. And you can never, you know, because you, you're in a call center. So eight times a day, someone is calling you complaining about your manager is a different reaction than maybe you would have if one employee came to you personally and said they were having a bad experience with their manager. Right. One thing I'm curious about, a company I was working with recently started putting together a um, Ask HR database okay. to where it was online. You could go in and do search options for those things that um, we talked about, benefit changes, adding dependents, mm -hmm. um, vacation. Is that something you all have seen as well in your careers? I know that was something new for us that we were looking for that hybrid model between a call center and removing some of the burden from yeah, I can't wait till 3.30 in the afternoon to John's out of a meeting and now he can get that form to me. Um, curious, what have your guys' experiences been? We, on that in, in my org, we have an intranet and we have a portal for, you know, accounting, for payroll, for HR and things like that. People don't like to use that so much. They like to come, they want to talk to a person. They don't, we have all the forms, all the instructions, you know, all the screenshots with the, the <laughs> line and the arrows. We have all that information right there. You click, you know, all you have to do is point and click. But people, they still, you know, they still call. They still want to talk to a person and get those questions answered. And we say, oh, that was that's on the internet. Okay, but I just wanted to call and you know talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean. For me, it's not a problem because yeah, you know, absolutely I, like, not. I like speaking with employees and building mm -hmm. that. I think every question builds a relationship. So yes. sometimes things can be annoying, like when do we get paid next or mm -hmm. when does the payroll period begin? And you're like, oh, the payroll schedule is on the Internet. But mm -hmm. I mean, it's fine because you're, you know, building that relationship with employees. But we have that. Yeah, uh, we have somebody that said uh, people don't I actually agree. prefer a portal and easily access the information. It depends on the person and sometimes the generation who likes the handholding. Like, definitely, Kim. And then uh, uh, Zakelia, she said people don't like to read. Yeah, they don't. <laughs> they don't. I also think when you look at the stratification of your employees, if you're, you know, a company that primarily is employing skilled labor, let's say, you know, so maybe you do have some hourly employees, but they're educated versus, you know, when you have people in hourly roles, you have a large organization, you know, and you have everybody from, let's say, housekeepers to VPs and everything up, you know, I do think sometimes there's an intimidation factor when it comes to computers. And especially if you have people where English might not be their first language, unfortunately, I find a lot of times HR documents are only in English and there's a slim possibility they're in Spanish. Mm -hmm. like, sometimes people that are Tagalog speakers or whatever their natural language might be, original. Um, yeah, I find that that is one area that I definitely see people are calling more about or reach out to the HR professionals they know because they just they're confused with the process yeah Shakita said my company has an ask HR call center and it's extremely informative it's a lot of red tape if I want to talk to HR but I've built my own relationships through internal networking great job yes <laughs> being intentional building relationships we're all a team yes that's a def definite approach that I would take okay let's get to the juicy topic <laughs> What talent acquisition? Talent acquisition. <laughs> so, okay, posing a question to the group 
Well, me being a recruiter and having been recruited throughout my career and having friends that are just really honest in their interactions with recruiters, they come to me and say, recruiters suck, Camille. Why do recruiters suck? Why are they so unprofessional? They ghost you. They don't respond to your, they don't respond to your emails. It's like you're, you submit your resume and it's a black hole. That's, those are the number one things that I hear about recruiting. And it's sad because I'm a recruiter and I don't want people to feel that way about people in my profession because I'm very much a cheerleader and eager to speak with people. And I want to follow up with people in a timely manner, all those things. But what do we, what do we do about that? How should candidates handle our peers and recruit <laughs> when they, when they ghost them or they don't respond? I want to so many opinions on this. I'll let you guys go first because I will be on a pulpit here. <laughs> go ahead, Allie. You're okay. <laughs> so there's two sides of this. A, I think that recruiters need to remember people are people, and these are people who have livelihoods behind them. Uh, a lot of times when I hire recruiters, I look for people who have agency experience because they tend to prioritize the candidate value and the candidate relationship, and they understand kind of the worth there. Then, unfortunately, sometimes people coming from HR who sometimes have had more transactional, they're just like, I'm overwhelmed, mm -hmm. right? And so I strongly believe that every person you have a conversation with should should be let down, right? Even if even if it takes you a week and a half and it's 10 days, which is sucks when that happens. But let's be honest, I I usually set days, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I reject all my candidates, but sometimes you don't have information, you know. That said, the flip side to that coin is right now, because of COVID, 72% of recruiters that are in my audience have been laid off from their jobs or furloughed. And so what I'm seeing is organizations that let's say they're still hiring positions, they might've had a team of 10 recruiters across let's say the US. They now have one person, but they still now have more jobs. And with the pendulum swinging on unemployment, instead of getting four or five applications in a week, you're getting three to 400. Yeah. So literally, I was talking to somebody who's getting 6,000 to 8,000 resumes a week. Right. And they're one person because they have 40 reps. Mm -hmm. A requisition is how many open positions you're recruiting for. Mm -hmm. So I've been telling people and other recruiters too, like, you know, things we have right now because of coronavirus, everything's really changed. It, it really, uh, companies are in a hard position in a number of industries, not all. Um, but that also means then that you might have one person literally fielding thousands of resumes. <laughs> um, so it just, it's, it's extraordinary times, right? Right. I have a, oh, go ahead, Carla. I have a follow-up question for Allie or Camille, since you guys are recruiters. Um, so in looking, so you know how if you have LinkedIn premium, it shows like the number of candidates that have applied, which those might not be real numbers because they could just be connected to their website. And if you hit apply and it goes to their website, you don't know really know if the person applied. It just shows up in the numbers. So if I'm looking at some jobs and I see that this one job has 389 applicants. It's like, shouldn't you all stop at a number number that you can handle? Like, if you know that you're having a hard time fielding, you know, five wrecks and you let your job posting run until you get almost 500 applications, 
shouldn't you say, okay, I'm going to stop at 200. And if I don't find what I need in those 200, in order for me to be an effective manager of my time, an effective relationship builder in the way that I, you know, uh, help the candidate experience, I'm going to limit the amount of people I let go into the black hole because I know I'm not going to look at 500 res resumes. Where Where is that boundary? Should people have those boundaries? Like, okay, we've got 400 resumes. We're going to stop here. Uh, I think it just depends. Um, I do try to cut my try to cut my recs off at a certain number because I have a smaller team and there's like literally no way I can. But I also, it's the, the dang on ATS. Our ATS <laughs> connects to uh, those um, aggregators. So like Indeed, LinkedIn, things like that. And from a lot of aggr aggregators, Glassdoor, all of those things, sometimes those aggregators, they have the one off, one click apply and things like that sometimes you get a lot of junk so out of those 200 300 resumes probably only gonna get i don't know five people that are actually qualified for the role because the downside to ats is connecting with aggregators is the aggregators give them the option to click one button they apply to several jobs they may not even be qualified for so that's the whole the whole tug of war with using an ATS and having it connected to you know other places that farm out to your job. But I do think it is, you know, stop it once you get to a point and go through those first batch of resumes. And then, you know, once you get through those, then maybe reopen it or make it live again. But yeah, it's hard to to balance, but I try to stop it. But typically, my roles don't get that many, <laughs> don't get 200 applicants. But I can see if you had a high volume rec, um, like a receptionist, like, okay, 200, 200 resumes for a receptionist, that's ridiculous because it's all about personality. You really have to go through the resumes and really talk to people to, to you know, see if they're a fit because, you know, a lot of people can be a receptionist. It's just based on personality and communication, fit and style. So, it also depends on the company to, to yeah. move out because I've worked for companies where I was able to my own wherewithal say, and these are big organizations, you know, fortune 300s where, you know, unless you're the VP of talent, you're not deciding the rules. Right. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, sometimes it's a matter of, okay, what is the company policy? And I've worked places where they said, no, we don't close off applications until we have an offer, which drives me nuts. Wow. But there's also times if you work on union positions, there's sometimes certain like things in the contract because yeah. I've done both hourly and salary recruiting where sometimes the hourly, you know, it might say we must leave a position open for 21 days, right? External and internal applicants. And so, you know, I, I've hired for housekeepers where literally you're getting 80 resumes a day and, I, and and applications, not even resumes. And so it's unfortunate, but sometimes there's company policies in play. Absolutely. And for um, going, talking about resumes and, you know, a lot of people are looking for jobs. And so I don't want to miss this opportunity to give tips, resume tips, a few tips for them. If they're looking for a job and wondering, should they have their resume redone? What are some what is some vital points they should have on their resume? Um, I wanted to get you all's opinion on that. And 
get your thoughts. Um, I think that um, in my mind, the, all the resume, <laughs> I think that resume style is important, but it's not as important as the content. I think the most important thing for a resume is being able to communicate what you've done, what tools you've used, you know, what projects you've worked on from beginning to end, um, your leadership or uh, you know things that accomplishments and things like that. I think is that's more important because I've talked to some of the best candidates and they have the worst. You're like looking at their resume, like who gave you this template because it is terrible. But worked at the companies they had the experience um, and I but every recruiter is not like me or not like Allie because sometimes to be a good recruiter you have to look past the resume a little bit because you know you have people well they're a job hopper and this and that well actually they have good experience let me call and see everybody has a story let me call and get the story right but I do think that people should put some effort into their resume but for me it's content over style um even though the style and you know it can we want it to look great but it's making sure that you have the content that is telling a story to the person that's reviewing your resume because you know that's why i like you know more of your conventional resume over functional functional is you're just telling people about what you can do and then your companies are at the bottom and it just i prefer for you to you know put you know your your company and date and kind of describe what you've done for each company show the progression of your career and your resume tell a story right it's a part of your personal brand and i think that's going to be something that is going to be capitalized in this moment in COVID 19 is personal branding it's all about your profile on linkedin it's all about your resume and what you communicate and how you reach out to people that have positions yep. it's about communication so the biggest thing to me is not necessarily like i said the style but the content and being able to communicate so if you need to practice with someone on how you're describing how to describe your work history and what you've done at each company then Find someone, you know, a colleague, a family member, um, someone that is in a hiring position in any company and say, hey, can I do a mock interview with you? Can I just go through my work history? Can I do my elevator pitch? Can I send an email to you as if I was reaching out to you about a job so you can take a look at it and look over it and let me know if that's something that would, you know, prompt you to react to me from a job perspective. That's what I would do. Well, you're at. You know, you're absolutely right. One thing I'd recommend to anyone listening to today's podcast is if you're not an expert in writing resumes or what to do, reach out and hire someone. The amount yeah. of money that you spend on it is well worth the personal investment, just in the same way of, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an accountant. I'm not going to go do my books for my personal business. I'm going to go to that subject matter expert. It's well worth the investment. It's well worth the time to speak to somebody who's in that profession and they will help you with everything from um, those key words that you need to make sure are in your resume in order to get them past applicant tracking systems on other things. Right. So just want to take a second to really strongly promote that to anyone listening today. Right. 
Absolutely. And um, Zakila, before Ali speaks, um, it says, also know your resume. People have others do their resume and then they can't speak to it after. That is so, <laughs> yes. so It's like, <laughs> yes, that is so true. Thank you for that comment. It's so true. <laughs> Ali? You know, I think it in today, today because of the current climate and there's so many resumes coming through, I think having a resume that, as Camille was talking about, speaks to your experience is so important. And the number way to do that, numbers, 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 numbers. Like, I wish I could drill this into everybody's head. Like, it's not, like, don't get me wrong. It is great to talk about how you rolled out a new software and the, the softwares you've worked with and all of the and projects you've worked on. But how has that tangibly affected the business? And at the end of the day, the people that are hiring for these roles, whether it's the recruiters or they're hiring managers or often executives, you know, they're looking at what sort of impact you can bring to the business. And so even if it's literally the first bullet on everybody's resume should be, if you're in, let's say, management, it should be how many people you oversaw, how many locations, uh, how much like the revenue was. If you're a salesperson, it should be, you know, I increased revenue by this much. I saved up yeah. this much. I I don't care if, if you're a receptionist, this is a perfect example. You're a receptionist and you say, hey, the way we're validating parking, we can probably save money if we do this or that. And you calculate that you save the company $8,000. If you're a $20 an hour receptionist, that's amazing. You know, like that should be the, one of the first bullets on your resume. So anyways, that you've had tangible impacts and you put numbers, there's studies that show the human eye is drawn to numbers on a page and even yeah. on websites where you see the heat map where the... Um, the cursor goes, and it's where the numbers are. So also make sure you use physical numbers, like get rid of the old school Chicago book of writing where you need to write out numbers under 100. No, put 4.9, put 2K, put 100,000. You want to actually have the number rather than writing it out as a word. Yep. And Kim said it quantitative and qualitative quantify your results value and i and i will say from personal experience when i was early in my career earlier in my career um i just had a basic resume it was basically a draft of a job description for each job, job under each role and i was junior i'm you know just putting it out there and i got a, a mentor through sherm because i wasn't getting any job hits i was just like i don't understand why and he told me carla do you do anything above and beyond your job duties i say of course he was like i want you to put that before you put your actual job duties that is more important than your actual regular average job duties. People need to know when they look at your resume that you go over and above what the average person does. And when I did that, I got a job. Yeah. It was like, are you serious? I applied for jobs for a year. <laughs> and all I had to do was put what I did over and beyond the job description. Yes, because people don't want basic people. Mm -hmm. They want people that's going to give more, more than the average. And so and, it, and when it's competitive out there, you know, when you put those accomplishments on there, it stands out. Even on your resume, because a lot of people don't do that. They don't oh, take yeah. the time to do that. And so it gives you a competitive advantage. I want uh, to challenge if we have any HR professionals out there to stop using the ATS as a crutch. Yes. 
we, you know, ATSs, they came in into play and it's like you're grading and assessing for us based off of, you know, buzzwords, keywords, key terms, and recruiters, you can just pluck a recruiter from anywhere and they're like, oh yeah, this person got a hundred. They match specifically what, yeah, because any, and I mean, if you've ever been a technical recruiter, and, and seeing those resumes, they all look the same. They all have the same buzzwords. And that's why I challenge, you know, HR recruiting. If you're looking at resumes, you have to look beyond. You have to look beyond and not take the word of the ATS to find your ideal candidate because the ATS graded them at 100% fit for the job. You still mm -hmm. have to look through and review resumes and challenge yourself to find that needle in a haystack. Maybe the best fit for the culture for the company was graded at a 67% and not a 100%. So I want to challenge all the, you know, recruiters if you have, you know, people listening in that are recruiters to look beyond and and, and stop using the ATS as a crutch cuz I hate that. <laughs> I also I, No. Yeah, it is. I was I was gonna say I was at I was at an HR online conference a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about ATS. And I said ATSs are only good as the end users. They're only good as the end users. I think for candidates, I think also both what you're saying. I think there's become such a focus on ATSs that people are using the first half of their resume to just keyword load or you know back it used to say like seo load things yeah. you're just putting all these keywords like and and by the time you get your experience it's at the bottom of that first page and you might have some amazing experience from your last job but now it's on your second page and i will tell you right now my executive leadership isn't looking past the first page you know so also organically tie those words in with your responsibilities with the things you did if you're worried about that and also to be really honest the only companies that can afford advanced ATS software are usually Fortune 500s. Right. I think for Fortune 300, our ATS didn't rank people or, you know, look at yeah. that. Mm -hmm. You are not about to pay for that type of software. So there's also, I think, this misconception that, you know, your average local business with you know, a retail chain with 15 locations has an ATS and they don't, you know, like they right. might, they're using LinkedIn to filter all their applications. So make sure, you know, candidates are doing themselves a disservice by taking up that valuable real estate to just put nothing but summary headline skills for the first half, that functional resume. Right. Absolutely. We're going to take a small run around the corner and talk about labor relations. Um, I know labor relations may seem kind of a thing of the past for some people, but I just want to let everybody know that unions are still out there. They're still working for people. Um, I've worked at an organization with a union and they're still thriving and trying to get people certain rights and everything. And I know John is on our panel and he is kind of like the expert in labor relations. Um, so I want to ask, do we still need unions? John? So I'll be glad to take the first stab at that one. <laughs> um, this is my own personal philosophy and approach to it. And I've shared this with union business leaders across America as we've sat down and had multiple conversations. Unions absolutely are still necessary in America where you have problems with the workforce and employees feel like they're not being heard. If they've got safety issues, if they've got concerns around um, equal treatment, equitable treatment, 
things of that nature. Yes, unions are going to continue to thrive and any business agent will tell you the same thing. Those are the areas that they are looking at, that they are readily moving into to create a campaign, to start unionizing, to expand their base. Uh, unions are the same things as any other business. It is a business. Mm -hmm. And in order to have revenue, you've got to have membership. So those are the things that I would say there. Where companies are successful in avoiding unionization, it really gets into how are you handling the employee and building the trust between the management and the employee at all levels. So, and I say that not just as, um, you know, traditional utilities per se, where you've got a representative workforce going out and turning wrenches or installing power lines, things of that nature, but we're seeing an uptick in professional unions. We're seeing mm -hmm. an uptick in individuals in the professional ranks joining unions. One of the hottest areas right now is in hospitals and nursing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. starting to question and raise unionization. I've here in my home city of Chattanooga, Tennessee, it's been in the paper quite a bit lately that uh, the largest hospital here, a lot of nurses are talking about unionizing. Um, mm -hmm. So it really comes down to you've got to ask the question of um, what are you doing for your workforce? And is somebody else going to be able to come in and do it better for that employee than you are? If the answer is yes, you've got a real or case on your hands that you're going to have to start thinking about the strategy you've got to play. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I do, you know, working in a union environment, I worked at a, a organization or a manufacturing plant where union avoidance was on the job posting. <laughs> it was like, you got to avoid unions. We want to hire you. And so, and then, so I thought earlier in my experience, like, oh, why do we, why do we need unions and why do, you know, what value do they add? But then I went to a unionized organization and honestly, I saw now some union groups are better than others. And with the ones that were better than others, I did see value in them. And I think that HR and the organization shouldn't be scared of trying to uh, compromise and figure out solutions for the employee workforce. I mean, the, the union, when they're good, they act as an advocate. Um, but I do, on the other hand, I feel like HR should be the advocate for the employee. And so it's like a tug of war with me where I think I see where the union has value, but I also see where HR needs to step up and add that value also and be the advocate for the whole workforce. So we don't need a union. And that goes back to what we were talking about before, um, how HR needs to get out off of their um out of their office in all their all day meetings and get to know their workforce um, because the, to me that's union avoidance when you know your workforce and but when you don't know them and you don't hear them they look for other people that can promote their ideals and and grievances and i work in a union group and i agree um i Sometimes I'm like, I understand where, why people want unions. Yes. But I think my personal philosophy is that if you have a great HR group, you don't need a union. Right. Um, and sometimes, you know, the group that I worked with before that had unions, you know, I often saw, and it was kind of early in my HR career, um, I just saw it as a lot of tape to go through. And I just 
I was like, I have the answer. Like, can we do this and can we do that? And my leader is saying, no, well, we have to submit this in writing. And then they respond. And I'm like, so we're taking two weeks to do something where I can just call this employee and say, hey, you know, come in. I hear you. But they went through their union to file this and all of that kind of stuff. So I understand that there's a need. Um, but as you said, you know, in certain sectors, um, it's just been a history of employees not getting heard. Yeah. Go to someone to help them be heard, um, even if it means paying them a, a portion of their salary to get heard. Um, right. they do that. Um, but it's after a long time of not listening to your employees. So John mentioned nurses. You know, it's been um, years of, you know, a nurse shortage and all these things that, you know, some organizations are um, hospitals are dealing with where the nurses are then having to pull the weight and work, you know, crazy hours and not mm-hmm. get pay. And, you know, instead of having someone who sat down and said, wait a minute, like we're making a lot of money. And year after year, our <laughs> nurse survey stores go down. When are we going to start giving them some of the things that they're asking for? When are we going to start offering some of the things that some of our competitors are offering to bring nurses in to alleviate some of the hours that they have to work? And so I feel like if you're the kind of company that has year after year neglected to respond to what your employees are saying, I understand why they do what they do. But if you have HR people who are actually trying to do HR work, I don't think you need a union. Yeah. Enrique, I'd add one thing to it. It's not just HR people who are doing the work. It's that step further. It's got to be the manager. It's got to be. Yes, absolutely. Out there and handling it. And um, as I'm sure we all can agree to, if anyone's worked in a union environment or myself as laborer, I was one person over roughly a thousand employees that were collectively bargained. And you can't be everywhere at once. So it becomes about training the expect the expected behaviors and supervisors and managers to say, you know, you, you have the power to resolve these issues. You have mm-hmm. the ability to resolve these issues. I will more than gladly coach you through what you need to do, but you got to build it at that level mm-hmm. because at some of the places where I've had a lot of success in seeing a significant decrease in grievances, significant decrease in fully con- concerns or issues, it starts off with that relationship. And it really goes down to the employee now saying, instead of, hey, I'm filing a grievance because you missed me for overtime, pulling the supervisor ahead and say, look, I know you were the only one there today. I got missed. You're absolutely right. We need to bump you on the list next week, and you're going to be the first one getting the overtime piece mm-hmm. there. Start seeing that great and that gift back and forth. But until we do that, mm-hmm. probably as a profession, but also advise the business on that model, we're going to continue to see those upticks and rise. Right. So we're getting close to our time, but I don't want to miss out on discussing another topic, performance management. You know, we've had lots of people come to us over the years complaining about their performance review, how their manager approached them, their score and all of this. So I want to ask you all, is performance management a joke? (laughs) Most of the time, it's it's a uh, what is it a blind date? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I did. I wrote a, I wrote an article on um, LinkedIn. It's called "Is Your Performance Review a Blind Date?" Mm-hmm. And usually it is. 
because usually managers come up with things on the performance review that you've heard for the first time in your performance review. <laughs> and, you know, I people, this is where organizations need to lean on having strong managers and leaders, because if your performance uh, management process is going to be subjective on what managers and leaders think, mm -hmm. then you need to have good leaders. Because if I have a poor leader, but I know I'm a good employee, chances are my poor leader is not going to know that I'm a good employee. And they're going to give me a performance review like I'm an average, average or not good employee. And it's unfortunate um, that, you know, employees have to go through this, but, you know, they have they find it challenging to navigate how to have conversations about their performance review if they disagree with them. We have people text me all the time. Do I have to sign this? I don't agree with it. And I'm like, you don't have to sign it. You don't have to say you agree. <laughs> you know, it's okay. And so we have that back and forth with, it didn't really do anything. They're just checking off a box. You know, I've had some personally, some performance reviews where the for two years I got average. Okay, well, I sent you all the things that I did over and beyond my my job duties and you're still giving me average. So obviously there's some confusion. I don't know what it takes to be above average. So can you explain that to me? And guess what? Every time they cannot. So if you cannot explain to me what you are looking for in a stellar employee, above average, excellent, superb, superior, then I shouldn't be average. You should be average. <laughs> That's because I, hear a lot of, I hear a lot of managers saying, Carly, no one ever de deserves a four or whatever the highest. Yes. No. Only that's only for the top of the top, but they can't, like you said, they can't explain what the top of the top is. So everybody on their team is average, and only the one person who they think uh, in their brain is the standout gets the, you know, four or five or whatever. But the, a lot of managers in most of my career, most managers say, I hardly ever give fives, or I hardly ever. That's going to take a lot. They don't even know what a lot is. <laughs> the favorite thing I've ever heard from somebody in a performance review was a colleague had reached out to me and goes, hey, I just heard my manager say they'll never give those top two ratings because the system requires you to have to write a justification for why it is. So everybody's average. I don't have time for this. And I, you know, I'm hopeful as we see in our own profession a lot of companies that are, you know, we talk Fortune 100, but go to Fortune 50, Fortune 25 and smaller. They're starting to move away from the traditional year end performance review and mm -hmm. really get on. OK, what is your quarterly feedback discussions looking like? What are, are right. you having bio conversations with your employees? Right. And that's where we're going to see that value added drive really. Yes. Yes, I agree. I think. Performance reviews are probably one of the one of the many areas of HR that can can, can use some reinvention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, an interactive dialogue throughout the year about what's going on is important, um, and not just that end of the year or mid year type of discussion about your performance. It should be happening every month or yes. 
Um, but yeah, it's one of those things that I think that as HR, we are um, tied to like the business looks for end of the year, mid year performance review. And it's like right. HR's cake time because we're like, let us show our value. Let us show like, <laughs> right. Yes. And so it's like, it's hard for us to even step out of our box and try to reinvent it because it's one of those things that shows our value as as a as a group and we're overhead. Um, but I do think that it's something that could probably need some refreshing mm-hmm. um, just because we're in a different world. And um, I think it can even be done similar to like, you know, like websites, like apps and things where you can have discussions back with your manager about certain things and not just like this long printout paper that you like sign at the end of the year or so, or at the mid year. I think one thing is that, I think this is actually one of those issues that I think is just so pervasive across all the companies of all the so many sizes. And I think part of it comes back to this idea of like, we put people on GPAs, right? And so you have these amazing employees who are these A students, you know, that are these 3.5, 4.0ers, but then you have organizations that are like, well, we can't give everybody a 4% increase. And so I think there needs to be either complete reinvention of how it's done and get away from the GPA or have really honest, transparent conversations. I find every year around performance reviews, because people are afraid to go to HR, they're coming to me and recruiting like, hey, Allie, like I got an amazing performance review, but I got a 3% increase. Like, what the heck? And I'm like, well, it's a bell curve, but there's no transparency about that where, hey, you know, in this organization, less than 2% of people get that 4% increase. The 95% of us get a 3% and then you have that very low who are getting the 2%, let's say. And so I think there needs to be just a better dialogue. And I think HR needs, unfortunately, be upfront about it. If you're in a bell curve organization, let everybody know when performance review season comes around. Last four years I've had performance reviews. I've had my, you know, VPs or whomever actually apologizing to me because they're like, hey, Allie, we think you're incredible. Unfortunately, like, I, I was able to give you a 3.18. That was huge, you know. They were, so proud. they were like, I'm so, I'm so excited to tell you that you got this extra 0.18. And it's not about the money. And that's the thing I think people don't realize too with performance reviews at companies, they don't realize it's less so about the money as much as it is about the validation and letting people know where they are shining. And of course there's areas for the next year of goals we want to work on. But I really think that conversation should be around like, you know, these are the great things. Here's what's to think let's tackle next year. And that conversation and dialogue rather than a GPA. Right. And I just have to add, you said about transparency from HR. I actually think it should go a step further. And we talked about HR people hiding behind doors. But I think some of the, biggest culprits of that is our comp team sometimes get out in front of the employees and explain what our comp model is as an organization explain all of these things so that they understand because you know as hr you get complaints about you know how much your salary is as an employee and how it compares to someone else and, you know, you're trying to explain to them, well, that person works in New York and we're here in Dallas and it's different grades and all that kind of stuff. Maybe it's not every month, but once a year, like have the comp person come out from their desk and, you know, yeah. and talk to the employees about comp and how it works and yeah. why, you know, we have this pool and it gets divvied up and 
then the man just have to divvy up again. And so it's not as much to go around as you think that it is and mm-hmm. not be afraid to have those discussions. I think our employees are a lot smarter than we give them credit for, you know, like yeah. understand that, oh yeah, Susie has been working in HR for 15 years. She's going to make more than me. And I just started two years ago. That makes sense. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yep. So we're, so we're getting close to the end of mm-hmm. our hour, but I want to ask one more question. I'm trying to decide between the standardization question or the overused word question. Hmm. I think I have a good answer for the standardized one. I don't have a word. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So our last question of the evening <laughs> will be, <laughs> so do you think that HR needs to standardize some practices? For example, we have the title HR business partner across our industry. An HR business partner at one company could make $30,000. It's an entry-level position. HR business partner in a different sector or different organization can make $125,000. And it's like, whoa, (laughs) that is a clear difference. Somehow the lines got crossed and we're just all over the place with titles. Um, nobody really knows what they're getting when they get an HRBP because the roles are so different. The comp is so different. And so, and then you have those pitfalls of, are you the HRBP that makes 125 or the HRBP that makes 35? It's a clear difference about the responsibilities that they had, but of course they can pretend that they had the responsibilities of the $125,000 HRBP. So I do feel like we need some standardization across HR. So we're on the same path. And so we know what we're getting when we hire a person and we have the same type of industry expectations on what that role is to do within an organization and what skills and, um, uh, job responsibilities they are to carry out in their role. What are some other things that you think should be standardized? So I love this question because I absolutely think that HR needs some standardization that we need, you know, for our our career. Number one, um, one of the things that has gotten me uh, like years ago when HRC and Sherm kind of split up. Oh yeah. yes, that was a mess. That, was, that was a whole. That was a whole gang fight. West Coast versus East Coast. It was. <laughs> but what annoyed me about it was that it, in some way, demeans our work. You know, like it's yes. just random stuff that's going on, and you know, you have leaders who, and we talked before, and I said, you know, HR in the past has a lot of people at a lot of different levels, high levels that don't have the educational background who kind of just got promoted into leadership within HR. So there's already a lack of quote unquote respect because, you know, you were no shade, but you were like the admin who kind of stuck with us as we moved up. And when Jim became senior manager, you became HR person. And it's just like all of that. Um, I think that needs to be corrected. And I think that's going to take time Mm -hmm. Um, because I do think there's a lack of respect. I used to tell people all the time, like when you have accountants, 
they get their CPA and that means something. Mm-hmm. But in our HR profession, among us, you have people, I don't really see the value in, in having an HR. I don't see the value of it. It's like, really? Okay, well, it's my credentials. It, it means something to me. Um, and so it's all of that. And just a lack of respect for it overall it leads to lack of standardization for it. Um, and even when you have HR that have, you know, people teams and all of that. And, you know, me and Camila come from a place where they had funky titles for their HR people. And yes. like, what does that mean? You can't go to any company and you find out, you know, their title is um, looking at the insides of this computer specialist. And you're like, what does that mean? I'm a senior engineer. Like, they're not going to do that to the senior engineer person. But HR, we get to be like, you know, the star people person, right, like what? So (laughs) there's a lot of disrespect. And I think that comes from, I also think HR is one of the only areas where we have consultants that come in every couple of years in our business and tells us this way is old. This is the new way, you know, like centralized, now centralizing it. And so it's because there's a lack of leadership, I believe, just educationally, when you look at like Sherm and all those kind of places, it's just mm-hmm. the whole bunch of like people being passive about what this profession really is. Yes. So you don't get anybody that actually respects it. And and that's what's really hard about it. And like I said, I think it's going to take time. And there definitely should be, shouldn't be an HR business partner that does copying and an HR biz- business partner that does high level riffs like those are two different people two different skill sets Um, it shouldn't be called the same thing you should not be allowed to call them that because you would not call an accountant an accountant in your organization and all they did was print out reports or something like you wouldn't disrespect that title yes but um I, like I said, I'm optimistic that things will get better. Um, I hope they do. I know there's a, a Sherm out, um, uprising that's happening as well. Yes. Now. <laughs> and I have oh, my that too, because I feel like, you know, they have aided in that instead of pushing aside whatever, whatever issues they had um, with HRCI, they fell into it. And now you have people who are getting, you know, Sherm, CP, and, and all of that. And then you have other people who have these different letters and it's all this other stuff going on. Right. My view that don't is not cheap. Yeah. <laughs> you want me to have all these certifications from all these different people and you're charging me like $800 to get each one. Right. right. A mess. So I had a special COVID price recently. I just want to put that out there for anybody who's listening in. Like I, because I'm on the recruiting side, I haven't gotten <laughs> the terms of HRs, but for 300 bucks, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> That's right up my alley. <laughs> That's awesome. I need to look into that because I'm always like, what? When they're sending me these like seminars and things, it's like, yeah, you can learn about and like I said, I have my own issues because I think they're very far behind. And so they'll talk about like how to improve your diversity numbers. Really? Is that is that the cutting edge conversation you want us to have? And you're charging me $1,500 to do it and I have to go to Tampa? No. <laughs> um, so I do think there needs to be standardization in the field. I do think it's on probably us and this group of generation 
to mm-hmm. um, raise the bar for HR. Yes. yes. Um, especially now you have more um, universities offering degrees in HR. Yes. Traditionally, HR people have some other degree. Right. <laughs> But now you're going to see more of that. And like and like I said, I think it's going to be us that kind of changes that model um, because it has just it's been a glorified personnel for too long. And that's not what we do. Yeah. Allie, do you have any things do you think uh, that we should standardize across the HR industry? Well, kind of piggybacking with what Enrica said, I think I think one of the biggest standardizations is ongoing education. Because I do feel that sometimes people, you know, they got their HR degree 20 years ago. And, you know, like we talked about, like that used to be personnel department. You know, it's completely changed and revolutionized in that time period. And I do find, unfortunately, sometimes people that sometimes are senior to me in title have less of a knowledge base because they're not keeping up with the trends. Trends is just it's contemporary measures, it's laws, it's compliance, because, you know, they've earned their right there. You know, I don't want to say anyone's complacent. And I get it. It is tough to do ongoing learning. But I think there's going to be some sort of standardization where every two years, you know, you're looking at getting recertified. um, And and hopefully not at $800, but maybe it's $150, you know, certification, because those laws are so complex. I live in California. I mean, our laws, like keeping abreast of those, you know, it's taxing, but it's integral to what we do. Yeah. John, did you have any uh, feedback on how HR can standardize some things? Did you have any input on that? I think Allie and Enrica really summed it up well. You know, (laughs) it's we've got to take our own profession into our hands and start saying, you know, here's what it is when you, when we come to the table, you know, before we came on, we were talking about job descriptions and saying, yes. as a table is strategic. Well, we need to take it away from why do people think that you need to put that in a job description for an HR professional? It should come to be expected that, look, you're hiring us because we already have a seat at the table. You're hiring us in because we already add value. just like your accountant does and keeping you from compliance issues with Sarbanes-Oxley or other organization or other entities mm-hmm. the same thing we're here to handle those situations so yeah we're going to have a seat at the table too because here's the issues that come into play so we've got to start changing the way that we market ourselves that we brand ourselves as a profession and really start stepping it up to say no this is what we do if you need a file clerk you know there's a different job title for that position yes yes Absolutely. and we do and all of this stuff that's happening right now has been the perfect example of why you need HR people. Yes. Good one. Good, Good one. Yes. <laughs> I think this is a, I mean, in this climate with COVID, with social justice, people are calling it out on the carpet, right? Things are being put on the table that we've walked on eggshells for too long. You know, people are, it's coming out. And I think that's the only way you can deal with it and get the standardization and the improvements within our group and within organizations is if you call it out. But everybody, you know, I think that things in corporate America can be very passive aggressive. Nobody really wants to put it out there, but they're talking around it and not speaking to it directly. And I think, you know, 
it's not a good thing that we have COVID-19 or we have social injustices going around with, you know, people of color and, you know, black people and, and all these things going on. But, you know, it's challenging us to be better. Mm-hmm. And I think that HR and just overall organizations, we needed that shake so that we could, yes. so that we could be better. And, and I'm glad we have that opportunity to be better. Well, we have enough platforms where I feel like our employees are getting on different platforms and voicing their dislike of HR. I've seen it on LinkedIn. I've seen it on Instagram. I've seen it oh, on yes. Even on TikTok, I saw a video where someone was like, you don't like HR. They don't do that for you. And so I think it is great to be called out um, right now because I, too long, the people who have really wanted to make change have been silenced in HR. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and, and recruiting, like Allie, I mean, like I see so many stories on LinkedIn yes. where people rip recruiters to shreds. So <laughs> they, know, they know they need a job, but they're just going to put it out there. This experience that they're having with, you know, our peers, our, you know, recruiters, they're calling them out like, hey, you can't ghost me. I'm going to call you out. Like, <laughs> you know, they're, yeah. they're being more vocal. And right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about some people as human beings. You know, it's, you know, I know it's so cliche to like in recruiting to dating, but on so many levels, you know, if somebody matches you on, you know, Tinder and they never message you, okay, fine, right? You didn't have much of an investment. That's kind of like putting an application, not hear anything. But if you've been talking to them and you went on a couple dates and then suddenly you don't hear back, that's dating, you know? <laughs> Same thing in the interview process. Right. Absolutely. That's a great analogy. And I think someone used to use the analogy like even if you don't have a, a employee, you have a customer. So in some groups, you know, leaving an applicant with that bad experience also makes you lose a customer. Um, oh yeah. Someone else. So you are the first experience that they're gonna have with this organization. Yes. And I would rather have someone walk away and say, you know, I didn't get that job, but you know. I swear if, you know, if Amazon called me tomorrow, I'll apply again. That's why I love shopping there because they're so great. You have to give that experience to people because you don't want to give the other because then they go around and say, I'll never work there and I'll never shop there again. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Well, we have come to our time. We want to say thank you to John, Allie, and Rika for joining us for this conversation. Of course, you know, you know, there's so many, there's so much room for improvement in our industry, um, in mm-hmm. our interactions with employees. We can talk about this all day, but I'm glad we got the conversation started. We value your input. That's why we asked you to join us. Thank you so much. We also like to thank our uh, audience for being engaging and asking yes. and putting their comments out there. We really appreciate this. Uh, for future, we're going to, this is going to be a podcast episode. So you like to listen to it later you can do that as well so we just thank you guys um for you know participating in this discussion and we hope you join us for future content this is carla the hr expert and this is camille the recruiting expert And we're the HR Twins. You just finished an episode of the Career Salon Podcast. 
Be sure to follow us on all social media platforms at The Career Salon. And don't forget to subscribe and follow on all podcast platforms for upcoming episodes.